it's a little bit out of order, but we're going to cover Judges 4 and 5, which you might already know, some of you will already know, is the story of Deborah. Well, at least it starts out as, as the story of Deborah. But let me, let me uh, frame this a little bit before we jump in. Um, the story of Judges, and this has been covered over the last few weeks as you've been here, the story of Judges is, um, is a series of stories, it's a narrative um, about uh, Israel in a time of national decline, cultural decline. Uh, it's a pretty dark time, and it doesn't get better as we go through Judges. So we have these, we have these uh, dips as far as sort of the cultural climate, and then we have, it comes back up, and then another dip, and then it comes back up. But each successive dip gets a little bit lower and lower and lower. Um, and so we're looking at some stories through that time in, the, in their history, where they've been blessed with this new land, this place. They've been blessed with uh, prosperity at the hands of God, uh, with protection in their homeland, their new homeland. And they quickly squandered it all by rejecting God and his truths. And it's going very poorly. Um, this morning, I'm going to do what I've been doing, and I'm going to tell you the story. But I want to explain to you really quickly why I do that. Uh, the Old Testament stories um, are actually, were originally uh, an oral tradition. And so uh, it's actually, a, historically, it's a fairly recent development that any of you have a Bible of your own. That's, again, on, uh, in the, on the scope of history, that's a new development. Um, and for many, many generations, uh, the way that you would know what was in the Bible is someone would, would tell you the stories of the Bible uh, orally. And so what I've been doing um, is I tell it to you as a story. But I want to encourage you uh, to do what I did in order to prepare to tell it to you as a story. And that is to spend time in the story yourself, interacting with the details of the story. Because every time that someone stands up here and takes a section of the scripture and relates it to you, the story of the scripture, and pulls from it certain interpretations, um, we're always consciously, sometimes without even knowing unconsciously, leaving a lot of important stuff out in order to cover certain aspects of the story. So this morning I'm going to tell you the story of Judges 4 and 5. And I would encourage you to read the story on your own and allow God to speak to you that way. So, you ready to jump in? I'm going to tell you the story. This is a story about who gets credit for what. So now you know the point. Uh, so what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the story, and then we're going to unpack that question. Who gets credit for what uh, after we go through the story? So here we go. Anyone know Jabin? Is there any Jabins in the house? That's not a super familiar name. You have a Jabin? That's rare. I have a Jaden. That's pretty close. Uh, Jabin is king of Canaan, and he had basically taken control of the Israelites. Uh, it says King Jabin lived in Hazor. And actually, Jabin's not really a character in the story, but he is the king who has uh, uh, taken control of Israel and has oppressed them. Now, there's something interesting, and you'll notice as you read through Judges, there are certain implications. Each time that the dip goes down and they come under bondage and things are not going well, it looks a little bit differently. And this time, it actually, you pick up the details in Judges 5, it says that the, the outcome of King Jabin's rule was fear 
That was the outcome. It says that people were afraid to even be out in the streets alone. It also says that he had disarmed the people. It says in, in, in Judges chapter 5 that among 40,000 Israelites, there was not found a single sword. So that was his particular brand of oppression. Make everyone afraid all the time. That's what he did. King Jabin had a commander. His name was Sisera. Sisera lived in a place that I cannot pronounce. We'll call it HH. It's two H words. It says that Jabin, through his commander Sisera, oppressed the people for 20 years. And after 20 years, people got so sick and tired, they said, fine, we'll turn to God and ask for help. And we're introduced to the third character, one of the main characters of the story, and her name is Deborah. Uh, Deborah is known as a prophet or a prophetess, uh, meaning that she's someone who hears from the Lord, and she's also someone that is skilled at communicating wisdom. And so it says that she would sit under a tree, and it tells us the name of the tree. The tree was named Deborah. Pretty sweet, right? She has her own tree that everyone knew as the tree of Deborah. In fact, it says it was the palm tree of Deborah. And Deborah would go and sit with no, as far as we can tell, no official sanction. But she would go and sit under her own tree, the palm tree of Deborah, and people would come to her for advice, for help, uh, to, be, to be instructed on how they could uh, deal with the issues that they were facing or resolve conflicts or whatever it was. Uh, Deborah was a wise woman, it tells us, and she was also a leader. So Deborah, apparently in responding to the direction of the Lord, says, it's time to deal with Jabin and his commander, Sisera. And so she, she summons another character in our story, a guy by the name of Barak a different Barak than the one that you know. And we don't actually know a lot about this Barak, other than that we know that he was from a place called Kadesh. And this is that's a, it's an important little detail that we're going to hang on to. So she calls Barak, and, and, and one of the translations, I like the reading, it says, she says to Barak, has not the Lord told you that it's time to deliver these people? Which is a funny question. I don't know. Has he? Is he telling you? Are you telling me? Who's telling who? <laughs> So she calls Barak and she says, here's the deal. This is what we're going to do. I want you to go back home to Kadesh, where you're from, and I want you to round up uh, 10,000 men to go to battle with you. Um, I want you to take those 10,000 men and I want you to go up on Mount Tabor, Tabor something. I don't know Jewish pronunciations, but I'm a great Bible school student. Uh, I want you to go up on Mount Tabor, and it overlooks the river uh, Kishon, I think. And what's going to happen is I'm going to bring out Sisera with his army. Oh, an important detail, it says that Sisera had 900 chariots in his army, which is like, that's a, that's a force, right? I'm going to bring out Sisera to the river below the mountain. I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to give them into your hands at the river below the mountain. Now again, this is Deborah telling Barak this. And she says to Barak, are you in? And Barak says, no, I'm not. 
Um, however, I would be in if you would be willing to come with me. And Deborah said, well, I have Tuesday morning mops, so I'm not <laughs> willing to just so quickly cancel. I suppose I could find a substitute. Yes, I will go with you. But I want you to know that when God gives you the victory, you're not going to get credit for it. Take that. Remember I said this is a story about who gets credit. You're not going to get credit for it. A woman's going to get credit for it. And I would say, uh, much to Barack's credit, he says, okay. So he goes back home, and he uh, rounds up 10,000 men. Remember where he lives? Kadesh. Now, there's another man who lives in Kadesh that we're introduced to at this part of the story. You've got to pay attention to the details. The details are important in this one. There's another man. His name is Heber. Heber. Heber the Kenite. Kenite is a group of people that were actually descendants of Moses' in-laws. So they weren't technically Jews, but they were along for the ride, and they had come into the Promised Land, and they had set up, but they had also kind of distanced themselves. We get the impression. So Heber lives there. He had separated from the people, but he lives near Kadesh, remember, where Barak lives. And Haber notices uh, a 10,000-strong army, and he's friends with Jabin and Sisera. And so he sends a little email and says, hey, guys, uh, just a little heads up. There's a group of 10,000 men assembling uh, near Kadesh, and they seem to be headed your direction. So Sisera rallies his troops, rallies his 900 chariots, and he heads down to the river below Mount Tabor, where God had said he would deliver them. And then the story says this, Judges 4, and Deborah said to Barak, arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as HH. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not even one was left. That's pretty crazy. That's a pretty decisive victory. Now remember, Deborah said, uh, you're not going to get credit. A woman's going to get credit. Now, at an initial read, you might think, ooh, can you hear that? How many of you think that that's a pleasant sound? Five. I would say keep it, Scott. We've got five people that want it. <laughs> Initial read, you might think that Deborah was saying, I'm going to get credit, but she was not. Because we have another character in the story, a woman by the name of Jael. Jael is the wife of Heber, the Kenite, who is friends with Jabin and Sisera. Jael hangs out at home. 
All of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not one person was left except Sisera. And he is running away on foot, trying to save his own behind. And he knows that their friend Heber lives close by. And so he heads off on foot and ends up at their tent. Where was Heber? We don't know. Maybe he was helping out with what was going on. Who knows? But he shows up, and there's Jail. And she says, hi, what are you doing? He says, well, things are not going super hot for me and my army, um, and I'm looking for a place to get away. And she says, hey, come into my tent. You can hide here. And so it says that she invited him in, and she hid him under a rug. And then... Uh, Sisera says to her, I'm very thirsty. Because getting destroyed in battle does dehydrate a person. Could you give me some water? And uh, Jael says, sure, I'll be right back. Now again, you have to read uh, the fifth chapter of Judges to catch some of the details because the fifth chapter of Judges is Deborah's, uh, she writes a song. It's a, it's a story song, you know. We don't really do that much anymore, but like, you remember the old songs like Big John? That's a story song, right? Deborah writes a, a song that's a story, and she gives some details, and it says that Jael gave her milk in a beautiful bowl. And so Sisera downs a gallon of fresh milk, and suddenly, from all of his losing, feels very sleepy. Of course, the milk aiding that. And Sisera falls asleep. Once Sisera falls asleep, uh, Jael takes a tent peg and a hammer and nails him to the ground through his head. So in case you're not familiar with this story, Jael is a savage. Right after she nails him to the ground, Barak shows up. Hey, have you seen a guy? Yay big. Looks like a Canaanite. Goes by the name of Sisera. And she says, as a matter of fact, I have. Uh, would you like to come into my tent? And he says, well, uh, I'm super busy. What do you got? Trust me. And she presents Sisera dead in the tent. And that's how the story ends. But there's one line at the end that's important, and we're going to come back to this line. And it says, and so Israel had peace for 40 years. So Israel had peace for 40 years. Isn't that a great story? I mean, it's a terrible story. What I want to do is I want to go through and examine who gets credit. Because what's happened here in this story, uh, you need to understand that what, what's happened is that the cultural forces of oppression and darkness have been pushed back and are at bay. And that peace lasts for 40 years. That's significant, right? 
I would say the first character, obviously, um, and I'm going to include these as demographics, is strong women. Deborah the Wise has placed herself with her people to help them live with wisdom. She is, she is a strong leader. She's made herself available. She hears from the Lord and understands the bigger picture of what God is doing with his people. It was actually Deborah that had the insight and awareness to hear from the Lord about his timing in setting his people free. Deborah was the one that heard that and said, okay, I trust what I'm hearing and I trust that God is now doing something new and unique. There is always going to be a group of people who have all the answers about what's going wrong with the world but are not in the trenches with people as a means of grace and truth. And yet certainly one of the most significant forces driving back the, forces, the cultural forces of darkness, strong women, godly women. Titus 2.3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine. Much wine. <laughs> Teaching what is good. What I actually love about this, the, the, the character Deborah is that we don't actually have any indication from the story that her leadership is in any official capacity. It's informal to the best that we can tell. And yet, the people regarded her as a leader because of her investment in the people. <clears throat> it's actually become one of my uh, favorite quotes. Um, the one who serves will never lack opportunity to influence. What I have seen, and this is Aaron speaking, what I have seen over the years is that many older women are concerned about asserting themselves into the lives of others, are concerned about overestimating the wisdom that they carry. And I would say, in response to that, don't assert yourself, don't overestimate yourself. Assert God's wisdom, God's truth, because you cannot overestimate the power of God's truth to transform lives and families and households. You don't have to have any strength of your own. You don't have to have any confidence in your own capacity. But here is a woman who becomes a significant player in driving back the cultural forces of darkness simply because she made herself available to her community as a voice of truth and wisdom. And they responded. In fact, Deborah's reputation is so established, she got a tree named after her. In fact, if you go to Israel now, you can find them. No, just kidding. That would be an old tree. That's the only recognition that we know, other than obviously we have her story, but that the people gave her. They acknowledge this is the place where Deborah resides and makes wisdom available to others. So that's the first one. Second one, second group that gets credit, supportive husbands. I mean, am I right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> now you're wondering where that's from the story. Did you notice the supportive husband in the story? Verse four, Deborah was the wife of, ah, guys, these names. 
Larry was his name. <laughs> she was not single. She was married, which means that she went home and told her husband, hey, so I recruited Barack, and he kind of was like, well, you know Barack. He's, he's a little bit of a wuss. Anyways, um, and the Lord revealed to me that he's going to go and he's going to fight the Canaanites and he's going to win. But Barack won't go without me. And um, I figured if I could make enough lasagnas and put them in the freezer for like a week, do you think you would be okay if I uh, take Barack to battle um, so that we can be a free people? How many plans of the Lord do you think have come down to when it really gets to it? Pre-made meals, right? (laughs) We're not actually told anything about Deborah's husband, but we know she had a husband. He's given a name. Lapidith is his name. And the only other thing we know, and we take this contextually, is that he did not stand in the way of her accomplishing everything that God had called her to. War? You get it, girl. Go after it. Ephesians 5, uh, and I don't, I don't want to go into this uh, in detail now, but Ephesians 5 in the later part of the chapter is talking about the role of the husband and comparing that to Christ. And Paul makes very clear, it's not just the role of the husband to be nice, to be tolerable, to be peaceful, to be kind. It's actually the role of the husband to play a proactive role in enabling his wife to be everything that God has called her to be. I'm going to say that Lapidus did his job. Larry is a good guy. This kind of love, a love that enables my wife to be everything that God has called her to be, to do everything that God has called her to do, is not the kind of love that requires my particular needs to be met before giving permission. There's always the sacrifice. Husbands, there's always the sacrifice that you make personally when you release your wife to the plans and purposes of God. And I don't want to belittle that. I don't want to diminish that. That's a real thing. So let's give it up for supportive husbands. If you are one, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. The third group that gets credit, men that don't want to go it alone. The story is actually not down on Barak. Hasn't the Lord told you that you will deliver his people? Not today. Not recently. Okay. Well, the Lord told me, great, you come with me. If you feel confident enough that this is God's plan, then you'll come with me and we'll do it together. What I actually appreciate about uh, the character Barak, again, who leads this thing, but he's probably one of the characters we know the least about, is that he's not actually disobedient. He doesn't actually say he's unwilling. He says, I'm unwilling to do it alone. Which, come on, is kind of our thing, right guys? Doing it alone. 
I'm fine, I said, I'm fine. He isn't unwilling to accept the assignment from God. He's just not so confident in himself that he wants the buck to completely stop with him. And he looks at Deborah and he says, you seem to be smart. You seem pretty capable. Can you come with me? And God honors that. So we give credit to the men that don't go it alone. The fourth group, the stay-at-home moms. So, I'm taking a little bit of interpretive license here. It does say, Deborah describes jail as a tent dweller, stay-at-home mom, right? Here's what's crazy to me. Stay-at-home moms track with this. As she is devising and executing, improvising on the spot how she's going to nail this guy to the ground, she does so in a way that never arouses his suspicions. That's something. That's a little bit of backbone, right? Come in. Lay down. Have some milk. Jail is improvising a murder and yet never makes him suspicious. She's as cool as ice and yet steely with determination. And here's what you need to know. Moms. All of the threats that bring our culture to its knees are going to show up at your doorstep. They're going to walk through your front door and you're going to deal with them in hand-to-hand -hand combat, whether you like it or not. Whether it's rejection of God, worship of self, sexualization, materialism, and all of the related anxieties that come as a result of that. This might sound like bad news, but it's actually not. You're probably not going to keep all of that stuff out of your house if you have children. Here's the deal. Jail, there's, think about the story for a second. There's, there's a handful of ways to kill an enemy sleeping in your tent, right? I probably would not have picked a hammer and nail at the top of that list, right? 
You would think uh, like a sword or a spear or a bow and arrow or one of those things in Lord of the Rings that has the ball with the big spikes on it. What's that called? Mace? I thought that was the spray stuff. Mace even, yeah, you can just <laughs> make his eyes burn. This is what jail had. Now, for you stay-at-home moms, think about the scenario. How many misses do you think you get? Now, I've been out of carpentry for a few years, right? And honestly, guys, I'm not trying to be graphic with this. There's actually a point to this. I've been out of carpentry for a few years, and I would have a little hesitation. You know, you can tell I've been out because I'm going to hold my hammer here, right? But this is not going to nail a guy to the floor through the skull. This might, but this is a risky swing, right? Right? Because if you knock him, he's going to wake up mad, I promise. And you're not going to survive. That feeling, that uncertainty, that one critical blow is the feeling that all stay-at-home moms have when those threats show up in their own homes. I don't have the weapons. My husband is on the other team. Remember that? Her husband is Heber. He's friends with these bad guys. And yet she carries this conviction that now is the moment. I didn't ask to play this role. I didn't, I didn't place myself intentionally in this situation. But here I am. This is evil. And it needs to be dressed, addressed. Jail is a savage. And yet maybe it's in the privacy of a home where some enemies are best dispatched. You would like them gone from the world. I understand that. But they're going to show up. And you're going to be outgunned. And you're going to have limited weaponry and know-how. And yet, guess what? You're the one. You're the one that God has called to kill that enemy on behalf of the people of God, particularly the ones that live in your own home. Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be wise, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. <laughs> Jail was not harmless, by the way. 
I'll come back to this at the end, but there is this thing in the new covenant we do not fight against flesh and blood, right? The very things that bring our society to its knees will be addressed in the context of your own home. And I want to assure you of something. Your confidence cannot be derived from your own capacity. It's the Lord. And he knows your weakness, and he set you up for this moment to be victorious. He will be with you. Plus, Jael gets the best lyric line, certainly in Deborah's song and maybe in any song ever. Judges 5.27. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. And where he bowed, there he fell dead. That's a song lyric. We're going to sing it as part of our worship service later. <laughs> Chris, can you write that up real quick? <laughs> Moms, wives, be brave and kill those enemies when they show up. Let's give credit to the stay-at-home moms, yeah? <clears throat> A couple more, and this is in the song, in Deborah's song, credit goes to the nameless leaders who lead and people who volunteer, Judges 5, 2, and 9, that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people, bless the Lord. All of the nameless ones, the ones who are not going to be named in this story. In fact, there's just a handful of people who are named, and yet we know that there were over 10,000 people in the effort. And I love the fact that Deborah, in, in, in writing the story of this, uh, uh, of this victory, gives credit to all of those who just said, I want to be a part. I'll be a part. I'll play the role that God has called me to play, but I want to be there. To all of the nameless leaders and people who volunteer, who put their lives on the line. In fact, she says in verse 18, despise their lives even to death. They're willing to put their neck out on behalf of their people, their families, their homes, their community. Despising even their own lives, even if it costs them everything. In a church community like ours, so many, right? People who step up and lead. People who step up and serve. And this is one of the things I love, and this sermon is not about this, but I just want to mention it. It's one of the things I love about the body of Christ, and Paul is very clear about this in 1 Corinthians. He said, God has designed the body in such a way that he has leveled the playing field of honor so that those that the body regards as being less honorable or not as desirable or as getting less credit, he gives more honor to so that there is equality for all. The body of Christ, every role in the eyes of God is equally as critical. And then Deborah gives a shout out. 
to the bench warmers. She calls them out. Judges 5, 16. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? To hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in the ships? Yeah, Dan. Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Great searching of heart is what she says. Here are these people who hear about what's going on, and they're really seriously thinking about getting involved in it. And that's as far as it goes. The crazy part about these bench warmers is there's no team size limit. We're all starters. We all get to play. I feel a little personally attacked by this one. Why did Dan stay in the ships and sat at the seashore? We all know why. Fishing, right? These are the ones who do not despise their own lives. They are unwilling to pay the ultimate price in order to say yes to God. Two more. I'm just going to add this in. I feel like credit needs to be given to hammer and nails. Am I wrong? I mean, they play a critical role in some pretty big stories in the Bible, right? Just give it up for hammer and nails. And then lastly, it was a joke. You don't have to go along. <laughs> lastly, the credit goes to the Lord. Judges 4.23, and so God subdued on that day Jabin, king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. God did it. Listen to Deborah's song, Judges 5. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, you went out from Seir when you marched from the field of Edom. The earth quaked and the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Deborah recognizes that for all of the participants in, exe in the execution of God's plan towards the liberation of his people, that it is God who is doing it. It is God who is empowering it. It is God upon whom our confidence lies, and it is because of this obedience to God, resting, uh, resting in Him and His strength and His power, that the story ends the way that it does. And there was peace in the land. This is always the true outcome. When the people of God prioritize God and his purposes, even in the midst of cultural decline, it is the experience of peace because the victory is in God's hands according to God's plans and assured by God's power. That's why we have peace. It's because the Lord is the one who brings about the victory. I invite the, the worship team up. I'm going to read you Psalms 3. This is not on the screen, but this is a lesson that David knew very well. I'll just read it to you. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. You are the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. 
I laid down and slept, and I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the impact of peace? I laid down, and I got a good rest, because God is with me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all of my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing upon your people. Remember, I said this earlier, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. You can read that in Ephesians 6. And our prize is not a material one. Our prize is the person of Jesus. Relationship with him now, and eternity with him, ruling as king in our midst. It's actually the same story that's repeated again and again. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a handful of people who say yes to the Lord. And the Lord honors that and multiplies the impact of their feeble obedience to accomplish his incredible good purposes. So I would invite you right now, whatever enemy you're facing, whatever enemy has walked into your front door of your own home, whatever that looks like, just take a moment in prayer. Let's do this together. Take a moment in prayer. Just say, Lord, you are the prize. And I just want to invite you. I want to rest in you. I want to cling to you. Not trust in anything of my own power, my own abilities. But I want to truly trust you. of dependence would you reveal yourself to us your goodness your power your kindness give us the grace to be all in with you we're going to spend some time singing together responding to the Lord in worship there's also communion stations Remember, communion is just a, it's a tangible demonstration of a spiritual reality, and that is Christ in me. That's my hope, his body, his blood in me. Uh, you can give during this time. I think we'll have a couple people over here for prayer. If you want prayer for any reason, they would love to join with you. But let's stand together. Thank you, worship team. You nailed it. It's awesome. Uh, in the middle of the church office, there's a, a play area for kids. And during the week, a lot of moms come and take advantage of that, which if you have young kids, you should do that. That's what it's for. Uh, but there was one mom there um, that I, I know pretty well recently, maybe a few months ago. And she, I asked her what, what she was up to. And she goes, uh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. 
just a stay-at-home mom? You should never say that again, right? Uh, I don't know if you know this, but if I walked into my house and my wife was like, hey, I had a pretty hard day today, and I said, oh, just a stay-at-home mom can't be that hard, right? It'd be really bad for me, right? No, it wouldn't be just the day ruined. It'd be like weeks, right? Uh, but isn't it true that we do that to ourselves all the time? It's not just moms. It's all of us. I'm just, I can't, I can't partner with the living God to accomplish his mission. You know, like, who am I? Second Peter 1 says, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. You're you're not a nobody. With Christ, he's made you a partner in his kingdom. That's that's exciting beyond words, right? And so maybe maybe that's a constant Thing that you're you're dealing with, I just don't add up to enough, and yet you you contain the Holy Spirit. If that's an issue with you. Uh, we have some prayer team members in the back. Would you pray with them about getting that mantra out of your head, right? Uh, actually, pa- partnering with the Lord on what He's calling you to do—not just moms, but dads and uh, whatever your workplace is. And so. We're so glad that you've been here with us this morning. I ask that you would carry this message through with you throughout the week. Uh, if you're having trouble um, getting food or in need, would you come and talk to someone on staff here? We'd love to help you with that. Again, we have uh, Women's Chapel tonight. Uh, Joel Rustad is sharing. Uh, Hannah Zook is sharing tonight. So please come, 6.30, uh, fifth grade and up. Uh, we'd love to, to see you there. Uh, yeah. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.